0: Hymn 451. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We praise you, O Lord, with our whole heart. You have kept your covenant of salvation to us in Christ. Your works are great, your word is true. Bless our meditation and study of all that you have done for us, that we might rightly praise and magnify your holy name. Give us holy fear of you that we might gain a heart of wisdom and understanding and abide in the comfort of your salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 111 in our ongoing walk through the Psalms is the Psalm for the week. And the, the Psalm is such a lovely Psalm of praise because what it focuses upon is meditation upon the works of the Lord. So you have praised the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So he calls you, by the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, the company of the upright, able to stand tall clothed with the righteousness of Christ, justified by faith in him. So in the congregation, uh, the Christian church is always a community of faith. It is never simply a collection of disconnected individuals because it is the communion and fellowship of the triune God of love, and therefore there is the corporate character of the church. Verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. So we give you many opportunities to study and delight in the works of the Lord this week. So we have three services on Wednesday, uh we have three services on Maundy Thursday, four on Good Friday, the Easter Vigil, 7 o'clock on Holy Saturday, and it looks like the weather will be spectacular on Saturday. So um, if you've not been to the vigil before, you can take advantage of that and we'll be, you know, socially distanced like we are right now. That's good. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So, at any rate, that's Psalm 111. It's a short psalm. It's only 10 verses, the last verse of which the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. That flies in the face of uh, Mr. Spock on Star Trek, who said logic was the beginning of wisdom. But he was wrong. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So. All right. Our verse for the week. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 in the Congregation at Prayer. It is also on the board behind us. This is from, oh, I didn't put the reference up there. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Um, it's actually in a stewardship. Section of 2 Corinthians, uh, speaking about how, of course, the congregation is generous. How could we be anything other than that, since our Lord was so generous with us, spending, spending his very life for our salvation. But the riches of the Lord, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 8, are the riches of his divine nature, Uh, His eternal glory and power and Godhead. He humbled himself, not that he ceased to be God the Son, but he set aside his prerogatives, right, omniscience, power, and poured himself out unto death for us. So let us speak the verse together. "...you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." So it echoes this familiar theme in the New Testament of the blessed exchange, you know, that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He who is Son of God and righteous humbles himself and becomes the sin bearer, so that we who are sinners might be exalted and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his undeserved loving kindness. And we see the outplay of this passage in the passion of our Lord today and throughout Holy Week, how though he was rich, yet for your sakes, He became poor, pouring himself out entirely, that we, through the poverty of his suffering and death, might attain to the glory of his resurrection and become what the Apostle Peter says, partakers of his divine nature. So let us speak it once again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And our table of duties section for the week is concerning civil government. Uh, It often falls on Holy Week, it seems, when we have Pontius Pilate, the civil authority, the Roman governor, in God's stead and by God's command, exercising God's authority in the judgments that he speaks concerning Jesus. Today, on Palm Sunday, we hear the Passion according to St. Mark. We typically rotate through the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Next year, we will hear the Passion according to St. Luke on Palm Sunday. And then traditionally, the Church church hears the Passion according to St. John, on Good Friday, which we will hear again uh, this year. It is in uh, the Passion, according to St. John, that we have the detailed conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And the famous words of Jesus to Pilate, who had told him, do you not know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus says, you would have no... Authority, unless it had been given you from above, which doesn't mean that Pilate doesn't have authority. He does, but it's given him from above. So in the Passion, notice this on, on Good Friday when you hear the St. John Passion, this fantastic exchange about truth. And Jesus says, repeating his answer to Pilate that he is the king, but not of this world, uh, he says, for this cause I was born and for this cause I came into the world that I may testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, to which Pilate then utters the famous question, what is truth? And Pilate, th- there's a whole uh, gambit of emotions and Intellectual point of view for Pilate in that question. He doesn't know how to handle the Roman government, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, Jewish government there locally. They had certain authority that was given to them. It's, it, to navigate those waters, this was the worst place in the entire Roman Empire to be a governor because of the recalcitrant nature of the Jews in Judea. And so the the Sanhedrin, governed by the high priest, was given certain authority by the Roman government, but it still didn't make it easier. So why are they delivering this guy to them? They want independence from Rome. And they're objecting to someone who claims to be Messiah, a deliverer. Pilate doesn't get it. He's dealt with many insurrectionists before. In his conversation with Jesus, he recognizes he is different than any of these others. Especially as Jesus insists, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Are you a king then? Yes, for this cause I came into the world. That I might testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice and what is truth. And then, wonder of wonders, to show how God is in control, even though you got here an unbelieving Roman governor. In the end, he acquiesces to their wishes, fearing the loss of his own position and life at the hands of the emperor if he doesn't keep order and peace. He says, what is truth? He ends up testifying to the truth throughout the entire gospel. Uh, in uh, irritation with the Jews. You know, what I have written, I have written. He is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. Pilate confesses that in the placard, not because he necessarily believed it, at least not at this time, but to, you know, stick it to the Jews who were insisting upon this. But it's just a, a great example of what the table of duties is talking about this week concerning civil government and how God does his will Through the authorities that exist, even though they may be unscrupulous characters, bad apples, and so forth, Uh, God will have the last laugh. So, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And Jesus uh, submits to the governing authorities on the one hand, but never ever does he deny his confession of faith in his father, ever. So he does not acquiesce to the degree of compromising his faith. And the apostles will talk about this later in the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than men. So that's the, uh, that is the congregation at prayer for the week. Uh, any other comments before we move on to Mark chapter 14 and highlighting some things from the Passion according to St. Mark. Kent. Uh, he's talking about, you can't hear this, he's not speaking up. So he says, uh, over the 4th of July, we talked about how the governing authority included the Constitution and the rule of law. That's true. Keep going.
1: So even our public officials are accountable, like the president is still has a governing authority?
0: Yeah, well, uh, yes, the government officials, the elected officials, are supposed to be in a constitutional republic, uh, answerable to the higher authority, which is, in the Constitutional Republic, the Constitution and the rule of law. Uh, i also highlighted over Fourth of July that the citizenry, the electorate, is part of the authority that has been established by God. Okay, so if you do not participate as a citizen, uh, engaging in the rights that you're given under the Constitution, In a certain sense, you're abdicating your responsibility, according to the table of duties, to submit to the governing authorities. Do you follow? So uh, you're supposed to vote, and we, according to the constitutional republic that we find ourselves in, the Bill of Rights, have the right to peaceably assemble. We should engage every right that we are given as long as those rights do not conflict with the word of God. Okay? Okay. So, while we have the right of free speech, we as Christians only speak what is true and what is edifying for public consumption. In other words, to engage in rhetoric um, that is insulting and then to claim as a Christian, well, I've got the right of free speech, so we can call people names and use invective, that's not Christian. Now, according to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, we would have the right to do that. But there's an example of where uh, never, ever do any rights trump the uh, responsibilities and calling we have as a Christian. So the Eighth Commandment still uh, holds sway. Philip? That is true. All right, Mark chapter 14, then the Passion according to St. Mark, chapters 14 and 15. Um, Mark's Gospel is only 16 chapters long. The Passion begins with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 11. So you've got chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, there's six chapters that take in Palm Sunday to the resurrection and ascension, okay? So, in other words, the balance of material, and this is true of all of the Gospels, is weighted toward the death and resurrection of Christ, and within the death and resurrection, it is the passion, the death, that is amplified, So Mark's gospel is relatively short in terms of its reporting of the resurrection, not because the resurrection is unimportant, but because the suffering and death of Jesus is what made the resurrection happen. Uh, So you get a a sense of the the balance of the material. In John's gospel, um, a week before the Passion is John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, which is the final Straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, where the high priest and the Sanhedrin plot to kill Jesus, he's got to be destroyed. If we don't destroy him, the whole nation will become believers in him. Uh, And as we've commented a number of times, the irony there of that in John's gospel is that the high priest knew that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They didn't think that that was a fraud, you know, a cheap trick. Everybody knew Lazarus was raised from the dead, and still they did not trust in Jesus. But there's chapter, 21 chapters in John's Gospel, and chapter 11 is one week before the Passion. And then you've got 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Those uh, chapters are taking place on, almost all of it, on Holy Thursday. The catechesis in the upper room on the Holy Spirit and preparing his disciples for the suffering that they would face. And then chapters 18 and 19 of John's Gospel, the extended passion, and then as we just talked about, focusing especially on Pontius Pilate. Mark is brief. And I'd like to take you into the brevity, starting at um, uh, verse 12, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? There was allowance made um, among the Jews. The feast of unleavened bread ran about 10 days. So it, it allowed for, kind of like you have your Christmas or Thanksgiving celebrations, you don't always have it on Thanksgiving Day or Christmas Day, depending on when the family can gather because of their travel arrangements. So the first day of unleavened bread is the day that they typically would kill the Passover uh, lamb and um, and then celebrate the Passover the next day but it could be on other days within that period of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the Feast of the Passover. Uh, killing of the Passover lamb is the slaughter. So the disciples ask this question, and here at the outset of the Passion, all of the evangelists articulate in some fashion how what unfolds is happening according to God's plan. So, for example, here, his disciples asked the question, then in verse 13, he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him, and wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So, what happens? His disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So, you see, it unfolds the Lord, whether it's the Old Testament prophets or the Lord Jesus himself, speaks the word of God, and it all unfolds according to God's will. Now, I don't know how many of you were able to be here when uh, Pastor Eamon Ferguson gave his presentation, which was most uh, illuminating on uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land and the Garden of Gethsemane and so forth, Uh, but there is a a reasonable expectation that they have a, a pretty solid idea of where the upper room was. And a large enough room to accommodate not only the 12 and Jesus, but also the women and others who attended them. And Jesus would have been the celebrant, the the head of the household, so to speak. And as the rabbi, he would have been the one who, for whoever the family was, in this case his 12 disciples and the women, Uh, he would have officiated at uh, this Passover celebration. Notice how the emphasis is placed not on the bitter herbs. Why? Because the bitter herbs are going to be in the bitterness of Jesus' suffering as the true Passover lamb. It's not on retelling of the Old Testament exodus story, because the true exodus out of slavery, not to Egyptian slavery, but out of the slavery to sin, is going to take place in Jesus. There is no emphasis upon the roasting of the lamb. Why? Because the lamb is going to be roasted upon the cross. Do you follow what I'm saying? If you go, when you listen on Maundy Thursday to Exodus chapter 12, you'll see all of the things that were associated with the Passover. None of the passion accounts emphasize the leather belt around your waist, the bitter herbs, the roasting of the lamb so there's no blood left in it. But what they do all include is what else was a part of the Passover, the unleavened bread, and the fruit of the vine, the grape wine. Why? Because the true Passover lamb is Jesus, and the only thing taken over, he's the true lamb, the only thing taken over from the Old Testament Passover, commodities-wise, is the bread and the wine. Okay? Uh, Isn't it interesting? He takes the bread and says, this is my body. He doesn't take the roasted lamb and say, this is my body. Do you follow what I'm saying? He takes the bread. Um, The wine, he says, this is my blood. Now, understand how strange this is. Because in the Old Testament, they were not to drink blood. It was verboten, as they say uh, among German Jews. Uh, Okay? It was verboten. So, What Jesus does with the commodities of the Passover, everything else drops away. Like I said, the bitter herbs, even the roasted lamb drops away. What's left is the unleavened bread and the wine. And then he says those radical things. This is my body. That's radical enough. And then of the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take drink. Whoa! You've got to be kidding. Okay? Which is, now back to John's gospel. In John chapter 6, he says, My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's what caused the Jews to want to pick up stones and stone him, those who didn't believe in him. Because to drink blood, are you kidding? To say that your flesh and blood is for the life of the world? Are you kidding? That's blasphemy, unless it is true, which it is. So what John or what Mark emphasizes then here is, uh, verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, which would be uh, in his resurrection appearances, when he would eat and drink with them, the kingdom of God being consummated in his death and resurrection. Notice it is a singular cup. I have commented on this before. The movie that came out in the 70s called Jesus of Nazareth, they all had cups around them. And then during the Passover and the Lord's Supper scene, they all drink from their individual cup. That is not how it goes. The officiant takes the cup. It's a cup of thanksgiving. It is a cup of blessing. At different times, there is a thanksgiving prayer, thanking God for the exodus out of Egypt, their deliverance from slavery. And then it is the cup of blessing, wherein the idea is they're drinking in the blessing of the Lord's salvation. So in 1 Corinthians... Saint Paul says the cup of blessing, picking up on Passover imagery, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the participation or communion in the blood of Christ? The answer is yes. So the officiant would give the prayer of thanksgiving, they would drink in thanksgiving, and then the blessing, and they would drink in blessing. Jesus, at the moment of the blessing, Is where he says of the cup, "Drink of it, all of you." This cup is now the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Don't be put off by the term "many." It does not mean he didn't die for all. It's called a Hebraism. You know, he died for the many. The one died for the many. It's it just understand it means all. Kathy. It was the same cup, but they would, they would, um, you know, it's like, how many, how many glasses of wine do you have at a Thanksgiving celebration? Don't answer that. Fifteen. Okay, but, so it's, the same, it's the same cup, but, you know, they would give thanks. Now, I want to say something about So, you give thanks
1: and blessing every meal.
0: Or just well, if this is for the Passover. There was the giving of thanks for the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? Where you are remembering the mighty acts of Yahweh for Israel. And then there is the cup of blessing. Because everyone who is in the house is communing in the blessing of this redemption. So see how that then transfers over with the Lord's Supper. Everyone in the house is in communion with the blessing of forgiveness, life, and salvation that comes through the blood of Christ. But it's at the moment in the Passover liturgy where the officiant would bless the cup for this idea of drinking in the blessing bowl that he celebrated the Lord's Supper. Okay? Or that he instituted. The cup of blessing is now the, uh, the blood of Christ. And so they all shared in, I see all. <laughs> I I just you <coughs> hang on. Okay. example of communing that Christ is willing to take upon himself all of our sicknesses and infirmities and we do the same thing at the altar when we partake of the common cup we share in one another's burdens like a mother who tends to a sick child but the burdens are not simply illnesses the burdens are before leaving this particular section that did it, well, it calm down. Watch it, phony. Thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper is sometimes referred to by the title, the Eucharist. Eucharist is the Greek word for Thanksgiving. So I really thought, um, while Lutherans tend to emphasize titles for the sacrament, like Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, uh, in the Catechism, the Sacrament of the Altar, which is great because it locates the sacrament here, not on your television set, for uh, online communion celebrations, which are an unding. <laughs> right, Jim? Unding. An unding. unding. There's no such thing as online communion. <laughs> okay? But at any rate, you have to gather together. I thought it would be good to talk about Eucharist. What is being given thanks for? When Jesus gave thanks on the night he was betrayed, he was giving thanks to God the Father for the privilege of laying down his life for the salvation of the world. He was giving thanks for his coming passion, his suffering and death. And this parallels in the epistles where the apostles will say that we are to give thanks for all things. Instead, the world gives thanks for the things that we like, the things that satisfy our appetites and our desires. No, Jesus gave thanks for the privilege of being able to lay down his life for the salvation of the world. So we give thanks for that that he suffered, that he died, that he shed his blood. This We give thanks for this because this is the fountain and source of our salvation. And the extension then is, if God, if, if God the Son did this for us, that through the suffering of Jesus he brought about his greatest good, then we are also called upon to give thanks for the trials and tribulations. And adversity of our lives, because through the cross that comes into our life, He promises to work His good as He draws us closer to Christ, and so forth. Particularly when that suffering involves persecution or martyrdom for the faith. Okay. Any other comments about the, the uh, that you would like to ask about concerning the uh, the Lord's supper, Mr. Han? Is there significance in the fact that they were in an upper room? What do you think? Probably. Probably. <laughs> well, there is kind of a, um, an understanding and image that heaven is opened to you, you know, that, so there's symbolism in being in the upper room as opposed to down in the basement. Okay. Lord Wallace. Did he give thanks also? Well, the, yeah, the, and uh, thank you for bringing that up. I wanted to say this, too. The, the new covenant in his blood, it's inaugurated by his blood, which is in the cup there, is the fulfillment of the old covenant. So uh, what the old covenant could not accomplish because of the weakness and sinfulness of the people, Jesus fulfilled so he accomplished the old covenant and inaugurates now the new covenant in his blood, which promises forgiveness, life, and salvation. So the connection between the old and the new is one of a promise and fulfillment. But, but he, he wanted to fulfill it also for his people, Israel. Yeah. He fulfills it on behalf of his people and not his people only, but all of humanity, because in that covenant, the promise made to Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay. Did you have, Susan? Uh, the cup of blessing and the cup of thanksgiving. The cup of blessing and the cup of thanksgiving. We
1: know they said, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever.
0: Yeah. See... So, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, which is all over the psalms, and in Psalm 118, which is the Passover psalm, it's a thanksgiving for the mighty acts of salvation that came by virtue of his mercy, which endures forever. And now those find their fulfillment in the supper. That's why, notice what happens at the end of the communion. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Okay, so there is the connection. that the rejected This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, which is, again, the Passover psalm is taken over. Listen for it on Easter Sunday. Okay? That's why these days are called from Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. The, the Thursday to Friday... The Friday to Saturday, the Saturday to Sunday, those are the three days. It's called the Triduum. Uh, They all link together, and that Passover psalm is significant. That's why you have this is the day which the Lord has made. He made this day of salvation and resurrection by swallowing up death in his death upon the cross. Okay. Now, what I wanted to—yes, Beth? Oh, they didn't understand most of it, just like you don't when you're in Bible class. You know, who is this strange? What is this strange doctrine we're hearing? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not surprising why they didn't stay awake in the garden. I, I mean, they've had they've had this lamb dinner. They've had uh, who knows how much wine, Kathy. So how are you going to watch and pray? You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What? It's dark. It's, yeah, it's okay. Good sleeping weather. All right. Now, a uh, couple of things about the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray. Uh, that's kind of like saying the same thing twice. It is the description of what a Christian vigil is. Vigil means to wait. But like on Saturday night for the Easter vigil, you listen to the Word of God. You meditate upon the Word of God, the mighty works of God, like Psalm 111 for the week. So we hear creation, the flood, the Red Sea crossing, um, the three men in the fiery furnace, Okay, And then there's prayer. So you hear the word, you meditate upon the word, and you pray. Watch and pray is, the, is a description of what a vigil is, a time of waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the resurrection. Okay, um, They're watching, attentive to the word of God, and praying. Why? Lest they fall into temptation, which means yield to temptation and disbelieve. And what's interesting about the Passion is they do. They fall. He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And they all fell into temptation. Because every one of them ran away, scattered and fled. There was only one who was steadfast and strong in the face of this impending suffering. And that was Jesus. Okay. Now, in the Garden... Oh, uh, I wanted to say this, too. I highlighted a little bit in the sermon. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. That Jesus' suffering was not only the physical suffering of his body, which was excruciating, taken right from the cross, crucifixion, excruciating, uh, the most painful of all physical suffering, but it was also a suffering of his soul, so, psyche, the soul in the Greek, you become a living soul as the breath of the Spirit of God animates the body. Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground, and the Lord breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul, okay, being. So, Jesus' suffering is body and soul. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, and the point that I made in part in the sermon is that this excruciating pain for his soul was the idea of being ripped from God with whom every man should desire to be in communion. Now, Adam threw that away, but Jesus shows us what a true man is, that to have life in God and from God and through God and with God is the most important thing Because apart from that, there is no real life because he is the source of life. So this pain in the soul, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He rightfully desired to remain in communion with his Father. That's what every man should desire, but which we, because of sin, have thrown away. That is the real death, not even like the death that we have because our. Right, this is why the Christian's death is in the New Testament called sleep. Because whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Okay? No saint on earth lives life to life alone. Okay. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's, never separated from him. Okay. What Jesus experienced in his soul was what is expressed in Psalm 22 that he prays from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani in the Passion, according to St. Mark. Okay? So uh, finally here, and then we, we have to go away, that... Mark's gospel is the only gospel that has the naked young man. And I tried to get Mr. Hahn to wear nothing but a linen garment this morning, (laughs) reading the evangelist part, and he refused. I thought it was the least that he could do, but he didn't do that. Uh, Most commentators commentators believe that this naked young man was none other than Mark himself, who as a young man, perhaps um, in his teens, uh, was that his home, his parents' home, was where the upper room was. So when Jesus and the disciples go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, that he follows them in what is tantamount to his pajamas, And then as he goes out there and is observing the events, the soldiers come and um, arrest Jesus. And there's a clash with the disciples. They grab after this young man, and he runs for his life naked, leaving behind his garment. You do have this in the Passion, not just Mark, but the other Passions, where people signify or represent the rest of us, like Barabbas. Barabbas' name means Bar Abba, son Abba, of the father. So the true son of the father, Jesus, is executed so that we might become Bar sons of the father. But what does Barabbas look like? The wretched sinner. He's a murderer, insurrectionist, robber, thief, and so forth. So also, Simon the Cyrenian, who is emphasized in Mark's gospel as well as Matthew's, um, he was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. He didn't ask for it. The cross was laid upon him. Uh, that is something that is indicative and characteristic of our Christian, well, we don't choose our cross as it were. Okay? God does. And we accept the cross because it kills our self-righteousness and pride and it is used by God, as an instrument through which we learn to trust, whatever our cross is, that we learn to trust in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then this, so this naked man, um, he is, typifies what it is to be a Christian. Stripped of all of our own clothing, that we might be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. On Easter Sunday, note that the. Mark only records one angel in the tomb. There's angels all over the place, okay? But Mark only records one clothed in a white linen, okay? So you've got the naked boy stripped naked in the Garden of Gethsemane only to have the young man clothed announcing the resurrection. And that's what Mark is doing as he reports the death and then the resurrection is he is testifying to that death and resurrection. Now, am I saying that it was Mark that was in the tomb? No, no. But he paints the picture of the angel calling him a man in a linen because whether it is an angelic being vested in white or a pastor vested in white, the confession and proclamation the victory over death in the grave is the same. You follow? And uh, it's in Mark chapter 10 where likely it is Mark who says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good and that is God. And you're looking at him, Jesus says, you know. Well, he went away sad because he had much wealth. Here, No wealth can help him. He stripped naked in the garden, only to be clothed with the greater righteousness. Okay? Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay. So we'll see you all throughout the week. Uh, Don't forget, especially on Easter Sunday, if you could kind of try to register, that would be helpful for that Sunday. And then after Easter... Don't worry about it. Okay? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.